Is anyone able to tell me what this is? Olives. Olives. Absolutely. This is an olive from an olive tree. Now, in the Mediterranean world, uh, these you'll, is where you'll need to go if you want to find these. These are able to handle droughts, but they can't handle frost, so they won't really survive a UP winter very well. They won't even survive a, a relatively mild winter. An olive tree is a long-term kind of project. They make olives, and they will make olives for hundreds of years once they grow to maturity, but it takes them 15 years. So about the time that your, your kid's born at the same time as your olive tree sprouts, um, they're starting to learn to drive. That's when olives will start producing their first fruit. Um, you'll see that you'll oftentimes in a store look at olives and you will see some of them are black some of them are green if you have a black olive then they are a little bit riper a little bit softer a little bit better for eating typically the unripe ones are green they're green before they turn black um, as with a, a lot of fruits I suspect um, apples and, and such and pears as well they will turn black after a while but the olives while they're green they're harder and they are better for making oil out of. I'm sure that many of you have used oil in your uh, cooking, perhaps olive oil. They were olive oil is where it's at if you want to have an olive tree and get some good use out of it. Uh, the olive oil is used for food. It's used for perfume. It's used for medicine and anointing. It's used for temple worship. Um, my parents always had olives that they would serve as uh, just alongside the meal as a little extra thing to to add it on um, growing up and I will tell you I never liked olives I decided which is why for more than 20 years I have never had an olive in my life in fact I don't honestly think I have ever had an olive. I just decided that I didn't like it. So now, just as a very special treat, you guys, I don't like new foods, and I'm pretty sure I never liked olives, but I, in front of you, I'm going to try my very first olive ever. It's a green olive. We'll see how well I like it. Oh. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm really glad I got this coffee. It wasn't even for that. Well, swallow. That's salty. No. Oh. Oh. No, thank you. No, thank you. I love going to the Olive Garden and getting the salad, but every time I do, Tamara always takes all of the olives. I just pick them right out of the salad and just plop them onto her plate, and I keep most of the rest for myself. No pepperoncinis either. Oh, man. That's, oh, that's something else. Olives, let me tell you. But olive juice, on the other hand, uh, olive oil is, is amazing, especially dipping some bread in there. I'll, I'll say that's where it's at. And I'm, I'm definitely, after this, still of the uh, opinion that olive oil is better than, uh, than, than olives to eat, for sure. Now, let's say that you live in the Mediterranean, okay? And you've got... Uh, some land with some olive trees on them. And you say, I've got olive trees. Why don't I get into the olive business? I'll take some olives and I'll make them. And 
you know, the olives themselves are rubbish for eating. We already know that. You, but olive oil is where you're at. So you're going to try to figure that out. The only difficulty is you have different kinds of trees. Some of them have great fruit, uh, great olives that they're growing, but they don't have really deep roots. They're kind of in rocky soil. So they're not getting a lot of moisture and they're not producing a lot of the olives. Some of them are in really good soil. They've got good, strong roots, but they don't aren't producing a great number of Olive, or their, their olives are just kind of puny and nasty and no one knows what to do with that, right? What do you do? Do you plant yourself a brand new olive tree? No, you don't. You're not going to see anything out of that for 15 years. So what you do is you graft a branch in from the tree that's producing good fruit, the cultivated tree, into the wild olive tree that has good strong roots but is not producing good fruit. You kind of snip off some of the small branches that are not producing a whole lot so that they got all this sap, needs somewhere to go. And then you cut a little wedge in to the wild branch and you take a twig off of the good olive tree that makes the good olives and you kind of stick it in there. And then you wrap it up real tight so the sap doesn't leak out. It just goes into the other branch and over time the branch will become part of the tree, but it will be producing the good olives, the good fruits, and not the bad fruit. That's what tree grafting is all about. Now, why the horticulture lesson? Why, the hor- why am I teaching you about all of this stuff? Because what we're going through in Romans chapter 11 today compares God's work with Israel and the Gentiles to what a gardener does with olive trees. Okay? So this is the kind of background that people in the Mediterranean in Jesus' time, Paul's time, would know about. But we might not as much. Maybe you guys do already. Maybe you know a whole lot and you're able to point out all of my faults. Please don't right now. You can do that at the end. But this is kind of a basic run-through. Andrea, you're the, the master gardener. Did I get it kind of all right? You've grafted? Good, good. All right. So let's jump in and see what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. Starting in verse 11. Paul says, I asked then. They didn't stumble into an irrevocable fall, did they? Absolutely not. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression means riches for the world and their defeat means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will restoration bring? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Seeing that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I could provoke my people to jealousy and save them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be? but life from the dead. So here's what most people think of when they think of what God has done with Israel. They'll say God has been working with Israel for a long time, ever since Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David, all the Old Testament stuff. God was working through Israel and planning to use the nation of Israel to bless the world, right? And they would turn away and God would punish them and then they would repent and God would bring them back and to a place of blessing and use them again. Then they would turn away and, they would, and God would bring them back after they repented. And this was happening again and again and it got really bad at the time when Israel needed to be kicked out of the land and sent to another nation. But eventually they got brought back to the land and they spent hundreds of years without any prophets 
just trying to, to follow God as best they could. And that was the kind of time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. When Israel was saying, we're trying to be right with God, we're trying to make things good with God as well as we can, but there was nothing really happening until one day when Jesus came on the scene. Jesus, the one that the Bible had been talking about thousands of years ago, the one that had been promised to bring all of the promises for Israel to, to full fruition, so to speak. And he said, here I am. And what did Israel say? No, thank you. Please die now. They said that to God himself. So what happened at that point? Jesus died. He rose again. And then when the apostles began preaching, they started saying to Israel, Israel, it's not too late. Turn back and, and you, can, you don't have to miss out. But Israel said, no, we, don't, we won't do it. A lot of Jews were saved, Israelites, but most of the nation said no. And so God started working with the Gentiles. And a lot of people will look at this and say, because of Israel's sin, if God said, that is the last straw, I am done with you. I'm not going to use Israel to, to, to bless the world now. I'm going to start using the Gentiles. You have left the path and I am, I'm tired of this. I am done with you. But that is absolutely not what happened. I need you to know, God has never said that he was done with Israel. In fact, what God is going to is doing, has done, and will do through Israel is a beautiful picture of what how God is willing to work in each of our lives as well. Because when Israel sinned, they chased self-righteousness. They tried to make themselves stand on their own two feet and say, God, look at me, I'm so good. And God said, no, that's not what I want. And so they missed out on the promise of the gospel. Yes, but then God began to work through the world. He reconciled the world to himself. And not just for any reason. He did it so that all believers would receive life and they would be used to spread the gospel so that Israel would become jealous. And they would say, hey, Jesus, that's the only one who could possibly be our Messiah. The only one that could prove he is from the line of David. The only one who fulfilled the prophecies. And you Gentiles, you non-Israelites are claiming him. We're jealous. That's the purpose. God used Israel's sin to bless the world, to reconcile the world to himself so that Israel would be jealous for the purpose of bringing Israel back into the fold and restoring them. This is a grand plan of God. You're wondering, what is God doing with Israel? Has he left them? Absolutely not. He intends to make Israel jealous so one day they will finally Get it. They will grasp that the message that they need God's grace, which can be found in Jesus Christ. And at that point, they will be used again. This is the promise that God has made. And he says, when that's happened, if Israel's sin leads to God blessing the whole world, what do you think God can do when Israel, when everyone is on board that God intends to use? when he has all of his tools willing to be used, available for him again. As Ray says to me sometimes, when you have the right tools, the, whole, the job gets a whole lot easier. Work smarter, not harder, I believe you say. Yes. So that's what Paul is saying. 
Let's keep going. Verse 16. If the first portion of the dough is offered as holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so too are the branches. Here's where we get into the horticulture and the olive tree now. Now, if some of the branches are broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among them and participated in the richness of the olive root, don't boast over the branches. If you boast, remember, you don't support the root, but the root supports you. Then you'll say, hey, the roots, the branches were broken off so I could be grafted in. Granted, they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand by faith. There's those verses. Speed read through them. Okay, there we go. Sorry. I get excited when I'm reading sometimes. This is a horticultural surprise, you might say. There are some terms that we need to unlock. First of all, the concept of the olive tree. People are wondering, all right, we're talking about an olive tree and some branches were broken off and some were put in and what is a tree and what are the branches and what is everything doing? First of all, we need to understand, to get everything else, we need to know what is the olive tree that Paul is talking about. Some people will say that the olive tree is actually Israel, which actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense because that means that Israel is broken off from Israel and the Gentiles become Israel and like what happens when God's... Israel is still distinct from the nations when they're brought back in and they're the head of the nations. It doesn't actually make sense for the tree to be Israel. Another thing we can say is Israel is not, the tree is not the universal church. As if God had originally intended for there to be a universal church, but he closed it off to everyone except Israel until Israel sinned. And then God said, now I reveal my real plan because of the sin of something else. That's not what he was doing either, but it's closer because what the tree truly is, is it's those that God is using to bless, to be blessed and used by God to reach out to the world. If you're wondering, what is the tree? It's not the people who are being saved, necessarily. It's those that are choosing to listen to God, believe what He says, and those that God then says, turns around and says, I'm going to bless you in a special way, and I'm going to use you to reach out to the rest of the world. Now, what is the root? The root is where God's promise began. When all the world started with Noah, became all the nations that were turning away from God, God said, I'm going to start a work in the world to reach out to everyone else. And I'm going to start with Abraham, which became the family of Abraham, which became a distinct nation of Israel that God was using, intended to use, to reach out to the world. They were the ones that God was blessing. The ones that had the message of God, the ones God was using to reach out. And their culture that they had. Their scriptures, the temple worship, gave them strong roots as a culture. They were cultivated so that they would spread the Word of God. But they had no fruit when they should have had it. When Jesus Christ came and said, hey, will you accept me? Will you trust me? Will you be used by me? They said, no. And then interestingly enough, when the message started going out, despite them, to the rest of the world, to the Gentiles, the non-Israelites, who had no history, no culture, no cultivation, no reason why they should have believed more than the Israelites, when they accepted, they trusted, they started being used by God, and God said, you are producing fruit, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to graft you in. 
He says, the Israelites who had been used don't trust me. They're not being used by me. So I'm going to stop using those who are refused. Some of the branches who are refusing to be used, I'm not going to try to use them anymore. Instead, I'm going to start using and blessing the wild branches from the rest of the world. So the tree is those God was using and blessing. The natural branches are the Israelites that didn't believe. Those are the ones that were broken off. And the wild branches were the Gentiles who believed. So there is a bit of overlap between Israel and the church, but that is not the big picture of what God is talking about. Trees are made to produce fruit that can be used for a purpose. And that is what God is using, talking about here. Then we jump into verse 20, where Paul says, Don't be arrogant, but fear. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, perhaps he won't spare you. Some people will look at this and say, ah, this is talking about individual salvation, whether or not you're going to heaven or whether or not. But what Paul is talking about is those he is using to reach out to the rest of the world. And there is a big danger in missing out on that too. Missing out on God's blessing and being used by God. He says, be Afraid, because if he didn't spare the natural branches, perhaps he won't spare you. Notice, therefore, the kindness and harshness of God. Harshness toward those who fell, but God's kindness toward you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be brought, uh, cut off. And even they, if they didn't continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, Israelites. For God's able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what's by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated one, how much more will these natural branches be grafted into their olive tree? This is where Paul gives us warnings. And he says, you got a couple more turns. Grafting, continue, cut off. If we're talking again about God being used, if Uh, God being used by the world, this is the tree. If you're grafted into the tree, it's not complicated. It means that you are someone who's becoming blessed and used, like the Gentiles were. If you're continuing in the olive tree, that means you're continuing to be blessed and used. And if you're cut off, that means God is no longer blessing you and using you. And that happens, you know about that. You've seen that in your life, haven't you? When someone stops walking with God, they stop trusting in and walking with Him. It's not that they stop being saved necessarily, but God isn't using them to spread the news about Jesus anymore, is He? And that is a sad, sad thing to see. This is something as well that can happen for individuals or believers. If, if I turn from Christ and I start walking in sin, the Bible tells me, Romans 8 tells me, nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I am safe in His love. God tells me when I believed I have eternal, forever, never-ending life. But... When I walk in sin and I walk away from God, that close relationship is gone. And I'm not being used by Him at that time. And on the other hand, that can happen for churches too, can't it? If there is a church, a body of believers, 
who forgets about the free grace of Jesus Christ and they start trying to walk in their things and they say that the important thing is what we do or the important thing is looking good or the important thing is what we wear or what kind of music we sing or we come up with any priority other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, what happens? We may still have believers in the church, but as a church, what happens? We begin to shrink and we begin to see that there is strife and dissension in the church instead of peace and unity. And God stops blessing and God stops using them as much. And they have a period of time where hopefully they will turn around and turn back to the gospel. Otherwise, God says that church may end up fading away. This is the danger for us that we need to be aware of. And by the way, before you start sharpening your elbows to poke the person next to you or sharpening the daggers in your eyes to stare at someone else, remember that it always starts with me and each of you who are listening to me right now. It doesn't start with the person next to you. It starts with you. Are you trusting in grace? And are you showing grace? Especially in those hard relationships. And by the way, before you despair, Paul is saying this not so that we would lose hope and give up and say, ah, well, I guess we're not being used by God. God says he can graft you back in. If you are cut off and you are not being used, he says he can put you back in in a heartbeat. He is ready to and waiting to. All he is doing is waiting for you to say, yes, Lord. And next week we're going to start to learn how we can uh, display Christ to others, nurturing their growth. Verse 25 says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so you may not be conceited. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come out of Washington, D.C., Oh, wait, no, sorry. Berlin, Moscow, Rock, Michigan. No, it will come out of Zion, Jerusalem. He will remove ungodliness from America, from Uganda. No, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins, my promise. In regard to the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But in regard to election, they're dearly loved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Let me say that again. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Let me say that again. For the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. It means you can't take it back. Just as you were formerly disobedient to God, but have now received mercy due to their disobedience, so too... They have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all people to disobedience so he may show mercy to them all. He says here that a partial hardening has come until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Believing Israelites were still being used by God. Unbelieving Israelites, God says, were being hardened by God, but not forever. Only until the fullness of the Gentiles come, came in and then Israel would be softened too. Guys, this should be our hope and our prayer. 
Because this is what God wants to do. He doesn't only want you to be saved. He wants you and the fact that you have a relationship with Christ to draw others to Himself. Especially Israel. If you happen to know any Israelites, you should be praying for them and not just saying, oh, they're, they're, they're their own thing. It's, even if they don't seem to be listening, you should be praying all the harder. By the way, what does fullness mean? It doesn't necessarily mean that God has a counter, a clicker, saying, oh, we got 6,599, 6,600,601. Uh, 6, oh, that's the full number of Gentiles. Now I can save Israel. He's not saying that. When he speaks of fullness, he uses this elsewhere in the Bible. He is talking of a full, mature display of truth. This, he says, when believers, Gentile believers, begin to fully display Christ, Israel will turn back. Israel will turn back. And Israelites individually turn back more. Unbelievers in general turn back more when you fully display Christ in your own life. Israel ended up, Israel's problem was that they chased a self-righteousness. They thought they could stand on their own two seat. And as a result, they looked down on sinners with disdain. We can do that too, can't we? And as a result, God says, Paul says, that what God did was he rejected the moralists. He rejected the people who said that God accepts the righteous people. That if you're not righteous, then stay away from me. He said, I reject those people who stand on their own goodness. And he says, I accept the sinners, the horrible people who have done horrible things, who thought that they were so far away from God that God could never possibly love them. And then they heard that God loved them anyways. And they said, yes, I trust in that love of Jesus. And he does that for a reason. Because when we display grace in our lives, when we understand it and experience it and live it out, God works in us to reveal their need, not for picking themselves up by their bootstraps, not for disciplining themselves, not for getting all the sin out of their life, but their need for the mercy of God, for the love of God that comes despite all of their failures, that shines through their darkness, so that all might believe and receive mercy. This is the plan of God. And he says, when you do this, when you begin to trust in the love of God in spite of the sin that you may still be facing in your life, when you understand that and you trust that and you live that out, the idea of grace will make your need for the sin fall off you like a burden, like a heavy backpack off your shoulders. That is the weight that is lifted. It is grace that gives you freedom and life. And then Paul finishes this whole picture with this beautiful word of praise. He says, Oh, the depth 
of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how fathomless his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given first to God that God needs to repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Can I get an amen? Amen. Can I get another one? Another amen. All right. You know what the wisdom of the world says? The wisdom of the world says, if you set a standard, if you want the full life, the best life you can have, you set a standard of right and wrong. Even if, by the way, in America, a common standard is that there is no standard. Whatever your standard is, and no standard is a standard, you set a standard of what is right and what is wrong, and those who live up to it you reward, and those who don't live up to it you condemn and you reject. And you know that even those people who say there is no right and wrong, they still reward those who agree with them and punish those who don't, don't they? He says, if you, the world's wisdom says, if you set a standard, and re, then based on the carrot and the stick, you make people act better, then you get your best life. And the world will be as it should. And in the church, we can even sometimes do that. We say, you know what? If you want to really be good, then you need to act good, and then God will love you, and then God will bless you. Now, God wants you to do good. He doesn't want you to sin. But we get our thinking all turned around because God says His thoughts are beyond our ability to fathom. God's work is to reject those who stand on their own righteousness. To receive and mature imperfect people instead who depend on His grace and His mercy. And then it's those people, the people that no one would have thought he could use, that he uses to humble the self-righteous, revealing that everyone needs God's grace. Guys, who in the world would have ever come up with something like that, something so beautiful? I don't know about you, but that makes me want to shout in praise too. Guys, I only got time for one question now. I I got really excited there. But I want you guys to have a chance to respond. So does anyone have something that God has laid on your heart regarding this? Either a statement or a question. Something God's revealed or something you don't know. Kind of anticlimactic to do that. But I'm going to wait. Mm-hmm. But when he told Jesus that he was on all of the ideas, but then when Jesus um, was on trial, he did deny him. And then when Jesus met him off the Galilee, everywhere for love, and we read Jesus asked Peter, Do you love me? God loves. And Peter responded, Of course, no, I do love you. Not God loves. More like family love. And um, this is how it went. Like the first two times Jesus asked him, Do you love me? And Peter said, I can't know you. But it was only after Peter like acknowledged, like he came to accept that all love was and it wasn't perfect love that Jesus needed Yeah. Jesus is almost asking Peter if he is holding up to a high standard. He's like, 
Do you love me with the kind of love I love you? And Peter's like, I love you, Jesus. But, man, I have failed you, almost as if to say. And Jesus said, you know what? I don't need you to be perfect. I don't need you to have never denied me. I don't need you to have to have a stainless record. He says, when you come to me in humility and love, when you say, I am not worthy, but I love you, and I believe you, and I will follow you, Jesus says, I can work with that. Absolutely. He uses us in our perfection, not after we're beyond our perfection. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a God that opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We thank you that you pour mercy and grace on the broken and the humble people who cry out for your mercy and grace. We thank you that you use us to display grace to the world. And God, we ask that we may continue to depend on your kindness and not on our righteousness. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. We glorify your name. And it's in your name that we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Let's stand for the benediction. Straight out of the passage we just read. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How fathomless are His ways. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. You're dismissed.